I always look at the shark attack, and we spoke about this on you know, the last podcast, is that, that for me was the, the catalyst or the moment in my life where it changed things for the better, although at the face of it, it might have seemed like it was for the worse. So having a title like that where essentially the shark attack was the fire that enabled me to regrow and become the yeah, person I that, that I am today is, is something that holds a lot of meaning. And Alrighty, g'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Driver. You can call me Brad. And I'm here with one familiar face and one new one. Today we're here to talk about a documentary. A little bit of filmmaking, a, a storyteller's journey as such. I'm, I'm making that sound really exciting and sophisticated and the boys are going to do a whole better job of me than that later on when we start to dive into this. But I'll introduce my guest for, if you're watching, from left to right. We've got Mr. Brett Canellan, um, episode 74 of the podcast, returning to talk a little bit more about his journey. And our new face, Semi Tolhurst, a.k.a. Tollywood. The boys are in the studio to talk about their new documentary, Pyrophytic. I hope I said that correctly. Nailed it. It's a tongue twister. And yeah, it's good to have you here, lads. Oh, thanks for well, thanks for having me on again, and thanks for getting <laughs> getting Sammy. Yeah, thanks for getting me in. Yeah, it was more so you're, you're just here, Brett, because I wanted Sammy in the studio. Yeah, yeah I'm just. <laughs> I heard it's a parent, package deal parental nowadays. advisory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is exactly. a package deal. Yeah, I'll, I'll just sit here while you guys converse. Yeah. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, the camera's actually not looking at you. No, at all. I'm cut out of frame for sure. <laughs> um, obviously, good to have you boys here. I had the privilege of coming to the premiere, where we got a, a taste of the doco in the trailer, and it was a great night. At, um, local studio the Teal studio shout out to those boys as well and it was really nice to see what you've been spending those last few months making I guess the first and natural question is why documentary obviously we know your story and for anyone who didn't listen to episode 74 or watch it go back and check that out it'll give you a little bit of context but yeah why the doco why was that the the choice um it's it's kind of interesting it wasn't always the documentary from the start um I mean, I've, I've known Sam for you know, a fairly long time now and we've worked together on a few different projects and at the time I first approached Sam, I was doing a bit of speaking work and was kind of just after a, a kind of like a, a five-minute introduction clip where I yeah. could you know, play it beforehand to give a, a bit of context around my story and do a bit of the heavy lifting and uh, I hit Sam up and he was, he was excited just to kind of you know, do a little bit of work and, and put something together and we, we did that and put it together to the point where you know we had like a five minute web clip essentially and mm. we both kind of sat back and looked at it and and kind of realized pretty pretty quickly that it needed more and from that point it kind of it grew and with each stage that we went through it kind of felt like we could have kept giving it more so it went from like a five minute web clip to like a 20 minute short profile and every time we kept exploring it deeper and deeper it got a little bit um, you know more complex and we figured out more things that we could bring in and eventually landed at a feature documentary which allows allows us to tell a little bit more of the story where it's not just you know my story that that I tell that a lot of people are familiar with it, it gives me an opportunity to bring a lot of other characters in and, and parts of my story which aren't mine to tell so it's kind of yeah it's been a bit of an, an evolution we didn't you know set out to make a documentary but here we are it's funny you say that because Whilst you were explaining there that the evolution of that from five minutes to feature length, I kind of thought short story long, but it's not really a short story, is it? No. When you're a shark attack survivor and there's that context and to explain that to people and then explain what you've gone on to do and what the plan to go on and do and what the mission now is, you can't really wrap that up in a couple of minutes. No, it's it's very hard. Uh, I think another thing too is, you know, when, when you look at putting a story out there, you... Yeah, a lot of people expect like start, middle and end and I never really knew where the end of my story was and that was another thing that we kind of went through when we were sort of figuring out what the whole documentary would look like is having you know this end product where people can kind of look at and say okay I can see that journey from from the attack all the way through the recovery and until the last bit which I'm sure we'll talk about which is doing the Molokai paddle and having you know a, a storyline like that where we can kind of put everything together it, it made a lot more sense not only to me but but also yeah when when sam and i talked it over it 
we, we really like the, the look of and, and the feel of that as an entire story. So, yeah, it's, it's funny how things kind of evolve from what you first picture. Yeah, um, for but sure. But it's, it's something like this whole process of in each stage that we kind of learn and, and grow through has been amazing for, for me personally and just learning a little bit more, not only about filmmaking, but about my story as well. Like getting those other characters in has, has been a huge thing for me and learning more about my story, which I definitely didn't know before. Yeah, definitely shares another side of it that you don't probably appreciate having been the one who was in the present moment going through it and and really just trying to survive through it and find some sense of understanding for what's happened you said there that you know there really is no end to the story because there's Mm. so much obviously more to come and you know we know what that will probably look like as an ending to the film but you get the sense Sam that you're going to be up for round two at some stage (laughs) I'm about round two I'm just trying to get through round one I I mean yeah I actually think back to how how the story's evolved and Brett and I had kind of talked about what we wanted for the film and uh, as it developed and then got to the point where we were pitching to actually our now manager and talking about potential ideas for the direction and Brett sort of flagged the idea of looking at doing the Molokai paddle and that hadn't been something we discussed in depth and I remember just sitting there at the hotel in Sydney being like oh we've got to do it I mean initially the idea was like looking to finish with the mental health aspect of the film where it's like someone who's been through some kind of traumatic event like this I don't think it's uncommon to see them either go one of two directions where they kind of become a shell of themselves um, and go very inward or kind of move externally and then look to inspire others and kind of use their situation as a platform to kind of do good things and that's definitely the direction Brett's taken um, and that was kind of what we thought the sticking point may have been. So looking at like what, what it is that triggered that in Brett to then go and do mental health talks and try and change people's lives. And as soon as, as, soon as Brett mentioned the idea of going to Molokai, I was like, there's no, there's no other way. We're going to Hawaii. You know what I love about that? It's, we spoke about it a little bit before, so a little bit of context for anyone listening or watching. Um, the boys sat around a, a coffee and, and sent me a, a bit of food. The um, the old roll here at Lee and me, notorious as a hangover cure this morning, you know, a bit of pre-fuel for a podcast. <laughs> but, um, you know, we spoke about, Brad and I particularly, David Goggins and his book, which I just finished listening to. And the thing that I love about that story is there's this consistent theme of a, a physically challenging endeavour. And I think there's something about a physically challenging endeavour that each of us can connect to because we are physical beings and we understand the the pain the sacrifice and discipline required to undertake such an event like molokai and did i say that right yeah such a hard one to say yeah. um <laughs> throwing, throwing all the hard pronunciations yeah at you, so. just, you've come here to stitch me up we're <laughs> yeah. not for that sure. qualified to correct you on it anyway <laughs> yeah so. exactly yeah um what i am really interested to do though is to create some context and understanding for the people listening around what that event is and what it actually entails. So do you mind doing that for us, Britta? Yeah, so the the event itself, it's a 52-kilometre open ocean paddle between uh, Molokai and Oahu, so two islands in Hawaii. That's insane. So, yeah, on, on the face of it, it's something that is... You know, it's a, a long distance as someone that's mm. run a marathon like yourself you you know what that distance feels like yeah um i suppose it's just like doing it but with the other end of your body so using your arms instead of your legs um the event itself though is is really interesting because it's one that is it has a lot of history about it yeah and it's one that really is the mark of a, a true waterman um, as a surfer you're always familiar with how incredible like hawaiian traditional watermen are um you think of guys like duke uh, or even like eddie Aikau, who you know are are really known for their water skills and that doesn't just stay in the realm of surfing that's things like life-saving swimming it's it's just being in and around the ocean and the molokai has kind of come to be like a symbol of being able to you know overcome well, not even overcome because I don't think you can ever defeat the ocean, but mm. to be able to undertake something that is so challenging in an environment that's so unpredictable and, and so tricky. And I think it's one where if you mention it to anyone who knows about the Molokai, they, they're almost in awe of you know, what that challenge is, is like. And having you know, a, a little bit of that history behind it, 
and a little bit more meaning to what the event is is something that I was I've always been interested with um, I mean ever since I kind of underwent my first big challenge post shark attack which was the Oxfam 100k walk and then doing the marathon and I've always had the Molokai on the radar as one that I've, I've wanted to do and having the opportunity to do that as part of the film is something that I'm like I really want to bring the audience along in that journey with me and what the preparation's like and what it's actually like to paddle it because it's it's going to be an incredible journey but on top of that I mean to be able to paddle that far for someone who is missing one of their lats which is one of the key paddling muscles is uh, is going to be you know enough of a, a challenge in itself so it does tie together a bunch of different areas of I suppose my story and what it's like to not only be attacked by a shark but overcome the the physical side of that and you know do something that I shouldn't be able to do in an environment where a lot of people would probably be scared of going back into after being bitten by a shark so it ties a lot of really important parts of my story together and I think is a perfect um, I suppose in quotation marks end point to, to what I would like people to, to see when they do you know digest my story so a few things that I feel like we've got to unpack there mm. so Firstly, you said it's almost the opposite of running a marathon in the sense that it's, you know, even just a little bit further, which is crazy, mm. extra 10Ks. And for me, the sad thing is you spend so much time building leg endurance, just only so much of that will really matter when yeah. you're sitting on a board. Yeah. Um, the second is what you just said there, which is something that I've probably just forgotten and hadn't fully appreciated. The fact that you know, we spoke about in the first episode your lap being used to, to fill part of the gap that the quad once had and how that's now going to affect this physical endeavour. Have you noticed, like, obviously you've been surfing the last couple of years and quite well, have you noticed the difference in the way that you have to paddle, the way that your body works out in the water? I mean, this is probably one thing that a lot of people come back to when it comes to, you know, the human body. It's pretty amazing how you adapt. Mm. I... I personally haven't noticed heaps of massive issues other than probably I get a little bit more fatigued in that side earlier, which is a pretty key thing when it comes to trying to paddle 52 kilometres. Um, with just my surfing and getting around the lineup and paddling, I, I haven't noticed too much of a difference in sort of output. And a big part of that is because your body does adapt and there's other muscles that can step in and try and do the job that the lat does. But even when they were looking at doing that operation in the first place, it was... It was really a case of, you know, we don't like to take the lat muscle from someone who's either a surfer or a rock climber uh, because, or a swimmer because you use that muscle all the time, but they, they didn't have any other option. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it is the case and your body does tend to adapt to it. And I think that's one thing where I even realised that when running the marathon, like I, my left leg's nowhere near as strong as the right leg, but it's that's the one that doesn't give me problems when I'm doing long distance stuff. Like I always have problems with my, my ITB and that's in my right leg because I don't have one <laughs> in my left leg. So it's, it's funny how, you know, what a lot of people could perceive as being the challenge being in that leg or in, in that side of the body can end up maybe sometimes being a bit of a strength. Yeah, of course. It's, it's really interesting because obviously an event of that physical nature, like, you know, we went, I'm sure you remember this well, on marathon day, as breezy as it gets, like the wind really turned it on for us, but there's only so much that that changes when you're running at a relatively cruisy pace for a marathon anyways, mm. whereas the ocean is a different beast. Yeah. It's unpredictability, um, the creatures of the sea, the change of the current, the wind becomes a whole lot more damaging than it does when on foot on a concrete path. You know, how, how do you plan for this kind of event? Is it an event that runs on a specific day regardless or do they monitor the weather coming in at the start of it? So it'll, it'll run on the same day. It's, it's held at a time of year where the weather is pretty predictable. Yep. Um, so they're going to get a wind from a certain direction, which is actually going to be pretty beneficial because it's coming from behind. Um, good news. Yeah, which is, which is actually a good thing for paddling because although 52 kilometres in itself fa- sounds like a really long way, when you're out that far and you have the white caps or you know the, the chops out there, you can actually kind of get on them and catch them while you're on the board. Yeah. So it is paddling 52 kilometres, but if there's enough wind or the conditions are right, you can actually have a bit of help from, from the ocean. Sure. I've talked to guys who've done this event and 
they've had it where the wind's blown from behind you, the swell's perfect, and you know you can finish in four and a half, five hours. And I've had guys that they've rocked up and there's been no wind, and they said it's just a grind for six, seven hours. So yeah, you know, it, it, it is very weather dependent, and I think that's one thing that you've got to be prepared for. And that's one thing I've realised in, in training. Summer around here is great to train because when the northerlies come up, you can just get out on the board and do some nice downwinders. Yeah. But you can't always prepare just to, you know, paddling those conditions because you don't know what you're going to get. And paddling just on the river um, as a bit of prep and, and obviously going to be doing a lot more of that coming up to the event does really get your body prepared for, you know, if there isn't as much wind or even for the, the last little stretch, which... The people I've spoken to that have done the event before say no matter what way the wind's blowing, as soon as you come into the harbour, it's always blowing into your face. So <laughs> the last part of it is always just the most soul-crushing. Um, and naturally, you're the most fatigued. Exactly. So so being able to paddle in those conditions is, is just as important. So, yeah, it's, it's something where I think the type of training that you you do for it you need to really prepare for for all conditions and i mean when i was planning to do the marathon training i never really planned to run in wind i didn't go out there and, and train in wind but you know luckily enough that doesn't really affect you too much once you start get you know get moving i think the only thing that could probably really change the marathon day up as if it was bucketing down with rain but even then it's it's probably not the same as the wind blowing the complete no, opposite sure. direction while you're paddling so being prepared for all conditions is definitely something that um, you have to do as part of the preparation for for the molokai of course sammy talks to me about putting the filmmakers hat on for this because this is something that you know it's, it's kind of hard to be there along the hallway right with the camera in his face it's um you know that's difficult in its nature it's obviously being in a location like Hawaii and, and how beautiful it is and what that offers someone who is such a surfer at spirit and, you know, the spirit of this film itself. Are there any plans and ideas? Like, how do you sit down and strategize how you're going to capture this? Yeah, it's interesting. We're kind of in the process of that right now um, and looking toward kind of what coverage we need while we're over there. I mean, there's the aspect of being in a boat for probably five and a half six hours um and then working out kind of what we need for the finish line right so ideally i think we'll probably have myself on the video and then another guy scotty rosini on the stills while we're on the boat um yeah. maybe another camera another camera one of the teal boys and then for the finish line we kind of need someone um kind of land base for the day as well i think to get the most out of it so probably a couple of drones one one from the boat one from the land um and then kind of just capture shoot the shit out of it as my old boss would say and then kind of yeah get what we need i mean i've i've actually had some chats to road microphones about potentially trying to get a microphone on brett for at least part of the crossing but the hard part about that is as soon as like that we could make it so that the transmitter is waterproof and everything but as soon as the actual mic gets wet or waterlogged like it's over so we yeah. might get the first part of the paddle um really fortunate to have support from salty surf housings locally who have supported us from day dot with the film so we've got we've got a housing for our red which is which is massive we're not shooting on a gopro or you know something to that quality we've, we've got cinema quality cameras to shoot on but whether that's getting the boat to move further ahead so i can jump in the water and film brett paddling past like there's kind of limited in what you can shoot when you're in the middle of the ocean but trying to add as much diversity to the coverage as we can i think is going to be key and then also trying to bring some kind of element into that where it's we either try and reach brett for a quick interview or just to, just to find out how he's going i think the key is shoot as much of it as we can and then cut it down rather than kind of get to the end of the day and go fuck we, we don't really have enough yeah of course and and that's always the it's not the thing where you want to say hey you want to go round two just so, so yeah. we can get some extra footage yeah. did you ever consider just a green screen in a pool <laughs> <laughs> that to me sounds a whole lot easier for so, both of you. sam notoriously doesn't like green screens so yeah, okay. <laughs> i think that's always out of the uh, out of the equation yeah, if I was born unfortunately for you Brenna. yeah i know i know it would have been a lot easier but yeah, I mean, we also have the benefit of being in Hawaii for a fair bit of time beforehand, so we can work out a plan. There's potentially a warm-up event that we can go and shoot just to make sure we're crossing okay. with our coverages. 
Um, and then I guess just being across the training paddles and stuff as well here. I know um, Camo, the guy who's going to train Brett, has invited him up to paddle through the Harbour Bridge and stuff. So that's pretty cool. Don't want to miss that. Yeah. So I think I think by the time the event comes around, we'll have a pretty solid idea. But kind of, I think you just kind of fall back on your instincts. It's kind of like Bretto with his training. Like we've spent a lot of time shooting this and being behind the camera. You kind of just fall back on what you know and trust yourself to get through it. Yeah, for sure. So, with with the planning to go over there to Hawaii, obviously there's some big waves over there too. But there's also the nature of well, you want to be 100% healthy, not carrying any injuries. Come event day, do you try to tackle some waves while you're over there? And well, fortunately, well, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the in summer, so end of July when the event is. Um, there's there's not too many swells over there so okay. I don't even think I'll take a surfboard there and we'll probably just be in full Honolulu Bay mode. could be fun though it could be um, but you know in the the interest of trying to make the most out of uh, out of getting the uh, the paddle done that's kind of number one priority it's it's like like anything you know when when you do commit to it you kind of have to be 100% um, and it, it is you know it is well 100% as much as you can while still trying to enjoy yeah, you know, the course. things that, that, that keep you happy. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of people, when you talk about Hawaii, immediately think waves, um, and some is more about wind. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So when you go, like, when you look at the rig that you're going to be going through this journey on, is it like a, I guess to give some context to the audience, but also to me, is this like a surf club paddleboard? So think of it like a surf club paddleboard in in the way that it's used. So yeah. um, when when it comes to the Molokai, you can there's a bunch of different crafts that you can do it on. You can do it on. Um, at, you can start at like a stock twelve foot prone paddleboard, which is what I'll be on. Yeah. So my board is twelve foot long, a whole bottom, um, and it's basically padded on top, so you can paddle on your stomach um, or you can yep. paddle on your knees. Okay. Um, there's a longer version of that, which is 18 foot long. Um, same sort of thing, but you have basically a rudder, so you can steer it a little bit easier. Okay. And they're a little bit easier to paddle. Uh, people do it on stand-up paddle boards, and they also do it in outrigger canoes and on foil boards. So there's a, a bunch of different classes that you can actually do the event in. Okay. Um, the, the prone paddle is... Well, apart from the outrigger canoe, is probably the the more traditional one to to try and go down when it comes to that, and probably I won't say the most difficult, but for me, probably feels like the the more challenging out of them. And um, originally, when I looked at doing this event, it was as a team and also on a bit of a bigger board. And the more I kind of talked to people and looked into it, it was like, well, if you're going to do it, then you may as well just commit exactly and, and do it in the way that's probably going to challenge you the most <coughs> just a full send yeah exactly so um so yeah the board it's it's um probably unlike you know any paddle board that a lot of people have, have often seen <laughs> it's mm. um it's a pretty unique board to look at and i know the first couple times i got on it it was it's not like paddling a surfboard it's not like paddling a clubby because it's got that whole bottom on it it's really unstable and it takes a lot just to get used to how to balance on it and how to paddle it in the first place so for me the preparation has a lot of the like a lot of the time i've spent is just being on the board and getting used to how it feels because that it's been very foreign even though i spend so much of my time paddling a surfboard it's been a yeah. lot different and that's been a cool learning experience for me as well fuck the core is going to be ripped up by the end of this film eh well, you're, gonna have the, you're gonna have the most dice six pack at the end of this. He already film. does, man. Yeah. <laughs> Either that, or it'll just be like completely rashed from laying down on the, on the board all the time. Yeah, true. So. <clears throat> I was out. I was telling Brado, I got out in the water for the first time in a long time on a surfboard, and I was never any surfer. I just watched. I remember watching Bell's Beach, Kelly Slater tear it up when I was like probably 14 and saying oh, I might get a surfboard for Christmas <laughs> and I used it probably twice and sucked at it so I didn't get much of a, a surf career in you know even in the first instance but that's why I'm behind the camera man <laughs> it's a steep learning curve <laughs> and like being out in the water for an hour 45 it takes it out of you like you are so dr- there's something about the ocean where I think like the salt water 
and just the constant movement and the fact that you have to be constantly on mentally, mm. that really drains you. So I can imagine there's going to be fuel required throughout the course of this, just like you would at a marathon or any long distance endurance event. What does that look like? Is this these boys doubling as fuel crew as yeah. well as camera crew? Yeah, so mo- most people that paddle, everyone that does it will have a, a support boat, which carries all yeah. their food and, and hydration and stuff like that. So just so happens that my support boat will also have a bunch of cameras on it as well. Yeah. Um, it's interesting what you said there about surfing and how much it takes it out of you because you don't necessarily have to surf for a very long time. I was at an event over the, the weekend up in Newcastle and the waves were way too big for what I care to really paddle out in most of the time and yeah. just paddling out to catch one wave ruined me for like I'm still I still feel fatigued from that weekend because yeah. it was a team's comp you go out catch one wave and come back and a lot of hard work so it's it's I think one thing a lot of people look at surfing as a sport where it's kind of cruisy you can sit out in the ocean enjoy the sun it's nice there's dolphins everywhere but it's <laughs> that's that's in the best case scenario but a lot of the times it's it's a bit of a battle you know what like I think there's something about the ocean that it's super humbling, it's super grounding Mm. because of that, just because of the nature that you are out of control in many senses, and you really start to appreciate it once being in it, and I even feel like, man, I feel like I'm more in tune with the ocean after one surf, I was running on Sunday, first bloke to spot a couple of dolphins in the harbour, I'm like, (laughs) something about this surfing, eh? I'm one with the ocean now, (laughs) I've been out, I can barely stand up on a surfboard, but I understand the way it works. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's the thing. There's so much to learn about the ocean. So the interesting thing about like the the waterman aspect of the Molokai paddle that I mentioned. Um, mm. Sam's dad was kind enough to to get me a present at the um, the trailer launch night of Eddie I. Cow's book, and I've been reading that over the last couple of weeks. And for for the Hawaiians who traditionally are the best people in the water out of you know out of most, like the some of the earliest swimming Olympic champions were were the Hawaiians. For sure. Um, and the interesting thing is there's for them it's such a learning process just to get to the point where you know the ocean and there's a certain pride and a certain respect that comes out of that as well and you know a big thing that they always say is that yeah you never never turn your back on the ocean you must always respect it because you don't know what it's going to do next and that's a a big thing that there's there's always more that you can learn even the most experienced people like Eddie Aikau can you know go and you know tragically lose their life in the ocean and it's it's one of those things that i think will always keep people humble uh, when, sure. when they're in and around it how's it been for you sam like were you were you in tune with this i guess this surfing culture or this ocean culture pre starting to film obviously you guys have been mates but starting to film this how much has it opened your eyes to that culture i've actually been so i've been around surfing for a while um it's funny the two two sports that my dad wanted me to pick up as a kid I didn't pick up until later in life and that, that was surfing and basketball so a bit of backstory I was working at surf dive and ski when I was just out of school I had a girlfriend who surfed and I was like well geez I've kind of got no no reason not to surf now so yeah, I picked sure. up surfing later than most but enough that I can I like I'm intermediate I can go and surf if we're overseas in Bali or whatever and, and get decent sized waves, I'm not going to go out and surf pipe or cloud break like Bredo is, but I've got enough of an understanding of surfing um, and I guess it's idiosyncrasies to know kind of what's going on. Been fortunate enough to work with a couple of world tour guys, ex-world tour guys. Um, awesome. Yeah, shooting with Maddie Wilco and Solly Bailey when I was living up in Byron. Spent a lot of time on the jet ski, a lot of time around the ocean, a lot of time swimming with the camera. So I, I would say I'm qualified to, to undertake this. Um, I've worked with DP, Brett's old employer and a mutual friend of ours for a long time as well. It's, he's actually been my longest standing freelance client. So my understanding of surf culture and the surf industry and the ocean as well is is pretty solid. Like I back myself with that. That's awesome. Um, but my ability on a surfboard is, is not enough to go and surf by a board. <laughs> I'll surf a six-foot beach or something. That's kind of my limit. I remember when I was living, I used to live like pretty close to here, just down at the, the Sage Hotel. Mm-hmm. We used to have like the top two floors were like residential apartments and we're on level 13. And I remember sitting one day, you could see the beach and it's like anything. It's like if you're sitting in a plane, people look like ants. You know, we're sitting on a balcony at 13 floors 
looking down at the water and it was pretty big like the surf report said about 12 foot this day and it was like it was big messy swell and dad goes reckon if we paddled out the back we could catch a few of them he gets on the surfboard i got on a bodyboard and i'm talking i've never been so close to drowning in my life <laughs> like we couldn't get past the first wave or two of whitewash <laughs> We'd been so messed around that his leg rope had wrapped around my neck. <laughs> and I found it so hilarious that we'd think, like, we found ourselves in that situation that my laughing was making me drown even more. Like, <laughs> and we ended up washing back into shore and saying, let's just walk down the beach 500 metres and have a shower up there so it looks like I've had a crack. <laughs> and, but it's that, it's that thing, isn't it? Like, you can be, I can go out for a swim in the water and, like, even if it's relatively big surf, having been in the water a lot, I feel comfortable and confident, yeah. but it's another thing, especially when you've got an instrument underneath you. Hey, it's mm. such a skill. Yeah, I think I've spent enough time in the It's It's the same with basketball. I've spent enough time with people who can surf and know the ocean to respect it enough to know my limits. It's the same, <laughs> same work in pro basketball. It's like, I thought I could play. I was pretty aware of my ability, but seeing pros go every day, you're like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm just a local. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So sure. it's like you, you just you're standing on the wing and someone asks you to hit an open three. It's like, I know I can do it, but in this situation, it's a little bit different. Right? Yeah. It yeah. changes completely. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about, obviously, through the process of filming this, how long since we've picked up, like, that first piece? Like, how long has this been evolving for? Two years? Yeah, well, it'll be two years in, like, June, I think. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know if this would be similar for you both or different, um, but what have been... What's been probably the standout moment or moment of real reflection that's come throughout the course of this two years? To be honest, for me, it was when we were able to premiere the teaser trailer. Mm. I think being able to stand up in front of you know a, a decent crowd of people and kind of just show them what we've been working on because we've been talking about it for so long and people know that we've been working on it, but having something tangible that you can you can show people and not only that, but to get... A reaction and to kind of almost feel the emotion in the room it is kind of not that we didn't know we were working on something important or you know something significant beforehand but it's, it's that little bit of I suppose validation where you you know you're on the right track and you know you're doing the right thing because I mean for myself and Sam like I, I haven't worked on a feature documentary before Sam Sam's worked in film and you know videography for a long time but never on something of, of this scale so you know, for for a lot of the you know the last two years, it's kind of been like we've we've been putting bits together, and then it's kind of like okay, we're we're at this stage, and then we'll learn something, and we'll be able to do a little bit more. So, kind of getting to that point where we can say, okay, we've we've got something, we know we're on the right track. I think has probably been the most significant moment for me personally. I'm not sure what it'd be like for you, Sam, but yeah, I think the turning point for me is probably the release of that <coughs> teaser trailer. I mean, as Brett said, we're both unproven as filmmakers. I probably th- this has probably been the thing that's taken has helped me take the step from videographer or I guess content guy to cinematographer. Um, and if I'm not there yet, it's the thing that will will take me there. Um, I mean, I think I think the biggest turning point for me, aside from the launch of the teaser trailer, is probably when we committed to buying the camera. So we went halves in a red. Um, and prior to that, we'd been borrowing one off Matt Hipsley from Salty, and he was kind of happy for us to use it whenever. But when Brett and I kind of looked at it and we were like, okay, what, what are we going to do? Like, there's one for sale. Should we do it? Should we invest in ourselves? I think that was a bit of a turning point. And sure. from there, like, we had the gear. We had everything we needed. There was nothing stopping us from just shooting and shooting and shooting and having stuff that was ready to go up on a streaming platform. Um Whereas prior to that, it was either borrow one from hip and kind of shoot around when there were waves or when we could schedule an interview with someone. But that gave us the freedom to be able to do whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. Um, And I I think you'll probably agree it's just kind of stepped up and constantly evolved from that point. I think that was definitely the, the catalyst. How much does that cost? Can't imagine it's cheap. I bought a couple of cameras for this sort of stuff. <laughs> it's it's not it's not cheap. Like it's it's one of those things where you you hope to purchase it once and it'll it'll eventually Lasting. end up paying for itself because you'll have it for so long. Yeah. It's one thing, you know, Sam talked about backing ourselves and having the the opportunity to buy a camera like that not only helps us with this film, but this is something that we want to 
keep doing mm. yeah, um, of course. like in, in an ideal world where we're able to do this documentary and it be successful and we can make another documentary and that's something you know I'm sure you'll agree like being able to share other people's stories is such an empowering thing and that's one thing that I've realised and was a big catalyst that has kind of been pushing me through making this film is I feel like there's only so long I want to be telling my story for I feel like I want to get to a point where I have told my story and then I'm not the 50-year-old guy who's telling the story about when he got attacked by a shark when he was 22. Yeah. I feel like the next step from that, though, is empowering other people to share their own story because I've seen firsthand what that can do for other people and you'd no doubt be the same. And being able to do that through documentaries, through film, is is a, a thing that I've always been passionate about Sam is the same but I think having set ourselves up the way that we have now it really provides a bit of a platform where we can launch from just this and and move into a little bit more storytelling as we go along let's talk about that setup because you know there's there's now a name to that setup the Mm. Honest Boys production Um, was that just part of this journey recognising that and saying okay this is not just going to be pyrophytic this is going to be you know, an evolution of many stories and many things under one umbrella. What are the plans and are there sort of, I know it's hard to look past what's such a big project right now, but are there certain types of stories that you want to capture? Is there a certain style of, of film and documentary you want to be known for? I'll let Sam answer this because I, the reason I'll let him answer this is because you know, he has a full-time job and for me, I have all the aspirations and dreams of doing as much <laughs> as I can with this, but, um, Sam can be a bit more diplomatic about it, I suppose. (laughs) A lot of pressure. I think, obviously, first and foremost, the priority is doing a really good job of Brett's doco, which I'm, yeah, beyond confident that we're going to do. But I think this is kind of the thing that that gives us a credit and and proves us as filmmakers and our ability. Um, The other thing that I really like about working on this is it kind of gives us a platform to share with other people around, especially around Wollongong, that we've both long known and respected um to kind of work on something on a bigger scale so that involves like the teal boys um scott rosini who i mentioned before and then a guy i went to uni with ryan unwin um and i think the end goal is basically just working on things that we're passionate about um finding people whose story that resonates probably with both of us because if we can both be engaged in that and 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 for it to be viable as well like i think we're in a pretty lucky position where we're telling brett's story and it has appeal to a really wide demographic um and that that gives us a leg up we're not trying to tell something that's kind of niche you know i've got a mate who's working on a, a wnbl documentary on the uc capitals in canberra and everything about the story is amazing but because there's not so much appeal in in like a a niche a relatively niche area of basketball it's really hard for them for it to be commercially viable whereas with brett's story it's you know a shark attack resonates with everyone everyone's curious about it and then I, i think especially in the way that we're approaching it and we're telling it that'll get us over the line so having that as a project that starts us off is great and then we'll have a little bit more freedom with what we want to get into. What that looks like, I don't know yet. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. exciting. It's, you know, that's the one thing regardless is you know that it's going to be an exciting journey and it's, it's doing what you love. It's yeah. doing what you're passionate yeah. about. And I think, there's purpose attached to it. I think uh, an interesting thing that you said there which kind of underpins everything is something that we're passionate about. It's easy for me to be passionate about my own story because it's it's mine and I've, I've yeah. lived it and it's... it's um, I think it becomes a little bit different when you're sharing someone else's story and I think getting someone who is you know passionate about what you know impact they can have in the world with their stories is key um, even for someone who is producing a film that's in a very niche market if it's something that you care about um, I think that's probably a, a really key thing that is gonna get those stories told and it doesn't necessarily matter you know how how big or how successful it can be but for a lot of people just being able to share a story where you can have that impact and it might just help one person which is something you and i talked about last time i was on the pod Mm -hmm. is a really really important thing so it's um 
that's something that you know we'll we'll always weigh up when it comes to what stories we do tell is something that we're both passionate about that we want to you know be able to get up every day and, and work on and film and, and work around so without yeah. a doubt you know one question that springs to my mind is I know how comfortable you are sharing your story and you know you've done it on multiple occasions now you've had the chance to speak on a bunch of stages you know guest on a bunch of podcasts use your platform to tell and to share and then obviously throughout the process of this last two years making this <coughs> excuse me documentary piece has it been like has it been emotional to relive that not just through your eyes but through others eyes and does that take a toll like, because I can imagine going back and consistently drilling on the most traumatic experience of your life and what's an emotional journey regardless of how great it's been like emotion is still involved how's that been um I think for me the the purpose kind of outweighs a lot of the emotion when it comes to if it would become like a, an issue or a roadblock um, I mean for for me I made a choice very early on that I wanted to use this story to help other people and um, once I'd kind of made that decision the purpose outweighed anything that would make me feel uncomfortable or, or would make me not want to do it and that was that was a big thing but I mean there's there's definitely points throughout making this documentary where I've been a little bit maybe confronted or have you know felt things that I haven't felt before because I hadn't been exposed to them. Like when we've been doing some of the interviews, I've been the person that's been asking the questions. So I've interviewed my parents about their experience in my shark attack, same with Joel, Joel and Aggie and, and everyone else. And that's been a really unique thing where I've like I said earlier, found out some things about my story which I might not have known because for me, since the very start, the the thing that makes me the most emotional is hearing the stories that other people have of like where they were when they got that phone call or saw that message or yeah, saw that Instagram post. And that that has always been something that's really resonated with me. Like I only a couple or two days ago found out another one of a, a mate of mine where he was telling me he was over in South America at the time and he was just about to get on a six-hour bus trip from one part of the country to the other and he got a, a message from one of the guys that was that was around and he just said Brecken Ellen's been attacked by a shark I don't know how bad it is but I'll update you on have it and he said that he went on a six-hour bus trip of just waves of emotion and hearing stories like that for me is is something that really you know it, it's obviously not only just a point in my life which kind of it separates time but it's created that for a lot of other people as well. Of course. That is probably the biggest thing for me where it's not necessarily a challenge because I like hearing those stories, but it can be a bit confronting because I think like for, for me, getting that message or that call is like my biggest fear that someone that you know, someone that you love, something bad has happened to them. So I think because it holds such a, a deep place in my own you know, sense of fear is one thing that it resonates with me a lot. But... I think that's probably been the, the major thing and because it's been at the forefront of you know what we're doing is the film is telling other people's stories it's kind of come up a lot more than I maybe would have expected yeah of course how long have you known Brett for since 2015 I think it was when we <coughs> started working together mm. I did we did a like a collab with my previous one of my previous um, jobs it was like a celebration of function and form a collab between an artist and then like joey at kingpin um he had a skateboard deck and then dp made a made a board with um some of his artwork Bathcat, the guy's name is a legend mitch um and i think we just kind of clicked like it, it kind of built from there that this was pre-attack um and then dp hit me up to shoot he was running this surf comp locally called the battle royale that brett was pretty instrumental instrumental in organizing and running it's kind of like your guys passion project mm. right and then yeah i mean it was almost a year later to the day i think or very close to um since we'd connected that i'd, I'd found out about the attack and my initial response was that i wanted to reach out and and kind of do something with that and tell brett's story but I was pretty wary because I kind of got the sense that people would try and tack on and, and benefit from that for themselves and, and I didn't want that. Like I obviously just valued Brett as a person, as kind of 
little interaction as we'd had at that point and then as the years kind of went by we started working together on more and more stuff and probably just bonded over music and surfing and sense of humor and stuff and and it got to the point where brett said hey like let's let's do something and i was keen straight away because i'd wanted to do it for ages but it was never going to be the kind of thing where i was like hey we should tell your story because so many people have done that with him so, yeah 100 percent. Yeah. you're definitely super emotional it's i'm so excited for this film like i know it's hard to say and we spoke about this before it's hard to put deadlines or dates on creative projects yeah. because there's so much involved but do we have an idea of when we think you'd like to have this wrapped up and obviously there's the process of going to the streaming platforms and and taking this to the platforms that are going to host it where people will be able to watch but do you have any ideas so the the molokai paddle which is kind of like the last piece um that's the 24th of july is when i'll be paddling that so if anyone wants to follow that but after after that happens we can kind of put everything together so we're we're hoping you know late this year probably you know october november Mm. probably say is a, a good time we don't obviously have a concrete sort of release date at this stage but throughout that process when we are putting it together you kind of undergo the talking to you know whoever wants to buy it but um i think regardless of of where it ends up we we would like to do a local screening somewhere in probably probably in wollongong because it's where a majority of the film has been produced and i think it's one thing for for me not only just the community in kaima but wollongong greater wollongong like you know the northern suburbs and that has been really supportive of me and i'd like to do something where it is you know pretty central and a lot of people can come along and and see it and experience it that'd be really exciting i can imagine that there's going to be an edit on your hands here a a large scale we spoke about editing before and you know one hour podcast edit does enough to to rub me the wrong way at times what is like the process to edit this have you been doing that along the way or is this like a job that you come to at the end not as much as we should have i would (laughs) say yeah i mean it where the production of the film's at we've kind of shot i would say 75 percent of the master interviews that we need yeah um and they basically form the narrative of the film we're at the point now where we go okay cool we've we've got a lot of the story how do we fill in the gaps and and how do we make it all killer no filler for lack of a better term so we kind of want it to be engaging we want it to be like the number one goal is for this to be cinematic and and stunning in in its visual kind of aesthetic i don't want this to be the kind of thing that's all just talking heads on the screen that becomes you know boring as as the plot develops so it's looking at ways that we can reenact without reenacting kind of the stuff that happened at Bombo with the attack it's looking at how we shoot Brett's overlay it's it's how do we incorporate those where were you moments potentially to introduce the film it's um then deciding on whether we need someone to narrate it or if we drive it through like a almost polished vlog approach with checking in with Brett as his training develops is it a mixture of both um it's there's a lot of unknowns and and this is kind of where the next step for us comes in because each like each point of the journey we've had to learn a whole bunch of information take that next step and then we kind of find ourselves in a position now where we look back and go shit how much have we learned this is insane but there's still like all of this ahead of us so probably could get some of your insight actually we're, we're trying to get all the boys to kind of watch sports documentaries and and watch other documentaries and take away what they like about the storytelling and then work out how we can kind of incorporate that into into the movie and that'll largely i think decide what we shoot from here and how we edit from here as well but the main thing we have to do is get all all the rest of the interviews on the timeline work out what's critical for the telling of the story, look at the duration, and then build it out from there. Sounds like we um, we might need some sponsors to reach out with blue light glasses, eh? <laughs> yeah. A couple of days in front of the screen. That's yeah. it. Square that, eyes. To be honest, that's kind of been one of the bigger challenges for me because I'm notoriously not much of a television watcher. I don't yeah. have a Netflix account. Like I just watch sports. That's all I really do on like with the TV. So trying to actually expose myself to more of that stuff has been... Uh, like I've I've definitely enjoyed it the more I've gotten into it because you look at it from a different point of different view ways. where you're not 
I mean, for some people it might be good to just sit down and enjoy it, but to kind of sit down and see how things are done has, has kind of been a really interesting thing for me. It's funny, I've spoken to a mate, Joey Plum, about this, who, you know, is good behind a camera too, and he was saying it's hard not to sit and watch a movie as a videographer or as a guy who works behind a camera mm. and almost like feel as though you're analysing every part of the way it was shot. Mm. And I think, feel like that's probably what you're describing there, Bredo, is like you yeah. start to become, it's almost like you're note-taking yeah. every time you watch something now to, to pick the best bits from it. It's been similar for me in the sense of writing a book as someone who doesn't read all that many books has really made me sit down and go, okay, I need to listen to as many books as I can, read as many as I can to understand the way the better stories are structured, the way that relates a little bit more as a reader mm-hmm. um, and, and those sort of skill sets and pick it up along the way. And ultimately, you know, you want to put out the best piece possible. And I'm really excited for this. I can't wait to sit down and watch it. Um, one question I have, which you guys explained on the night, but I know for a lot of people back home, listening, watching, this will be on the top of their mind, that title, Pyrophytic. Explain what that means and where it come from. Yeah, it's, um, it's one that confuses pretty much everyone that comes into contact with it. So um, we, we were sort of looking at titles for a little bit and we didn't know what to do because you kind of want to have something that's impactful something that might be provocative and it's one of the hardest things you can do like I don't I don't know how people go out there and you know name a bunch of stuff whoever's like naming car models or something like that must have a, a <laughs> hell of a time but um, yeah so py- pyrophytic is something that it does relate to, to my story but also is something that relates to our environment I suppose so a pyrophytic species of plant uh, is one that requires fire in order to germinate and regrow so you think about some of the common plants we have in australia which need bushfires and in order to do that you think of like wattle and um and you know gum nuts and stuff like that where um that's the process in which they they actually are able to to continue growing and um i think it's a, a really good metaphor for for my story because it's i always look at the shark attack and we spoke about this on you know, the last podcast is that, that for me was the the catalyst or the moment in my life where it changed things for the better although at the face of it it might have seemed like it was for the worse so having a title like that where essentially the shark attack was the fire that enabled me to regrow and become the yeah, person I that, that I am today is is something that holds a lot of meaning and Whilst a lot of people say that might be a bit clunky or confusing, I don't care how many times I've got to explain it to people because it's something that does mean a lot to, to me. And as soon as I mentioned it to Sam, um, you know, he was, he was right on board. Oh, I love that. And it's something that I sat with this morning because I was, you know, knowing that we'll come in here today to film, I was sitting down the beach having a coffee, ready to jump in the ocean. I was thinking about the title. And sort of it's, it's probably probably presented to me over the course of the last few weeks that the podcasts I enjoy the most, the ones that, or the books that I enjoy the most, and the stories I love to tell are the ones where there is a specific suffering or adversity or hurdle to overcome that gives a level of character and resilience in the person living that story out, telling that story, that then allows them to go on and really get the most out of life. And that's something I'm super passionate about and it's something that resonates a lot with with me and sort of what I'm trying to do in my life and the type of person I'm trying to be. And so I sat and I thought about that title and I thought, as much as what you just said there, whilst it is probably a little bit confusing for people, the meaning once understood is super powerful. Yeah, yeah, and I think having something that kind of hits hits harder even though it might take a bit of time to get there has a maybe a little bit more of a, a longer impact lasting effect exactly yeah rather than just hitting you in the face i think i don't think there's been anyone we've explained it to once they understand the meaning of it that hasn't been like oh wow that's brilliant or like i get yeah. it now it's it's always like it is powerful once they have that moment of realization where they kind of know where we're coming from and what it is i think i mean like if you look at other documentaries and stories i think they go for something more literal it'd be like the power of determination or something like that but it just that isn't kind of what we're going for i don't think it'd sit right with with either of us yeah 
And I think it's probably not a bad idea to keep Shark out of the title because you could confuse it with Sharknado. Yeah. Shark vs. Giant Octopus. Yeah. You, know, you want to steer clear of that genre. There's plenty of those. There's plenty. Like it's, I think the story, especially involving the shark, kind of does enough of that heavy lifting 100%. itself. And you can go one way and make it really overt and in people's face or, you know, you can have something where, like we said, if it, as it hits and has a, a little bit more of a lasting effect and... I think that's kind of the vibe that we're going for overall in in this story is that it's not a story about a shark attack. Mm. Like the shark attack is part of the story, but what we really want to focus on is what happened afterwards. It's that regrowth. It's it's what happened after the fire. Definitely. Yeah, it's the shark attack being the catalyst for the person that Brett is now. Yeah, I love that. It's it's interesting, you know, talking about this, this topic of titles because I was listening to a... It was Gary Vee's podcast recently, and he had Mark Manson, the mm. writer, on. And Mark Manson was talking about his book, which I'm sure most people have either read or come across, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and that title and how that title come about. And Gary prevent, um, presented it, I should say, to him as a question of Tim Ferriss wrote his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, and the way that he found that title was by using Google AdWords to figure okay. out what people were really, truly interested in and what was going to stand out to the reader. And Mark Manson done similar where he, he was a blogger who tested a bunch of titles on blogs and that one was what happened to go viral. Okay. So hard of not giving a fuck. A, a small blog that blew up and went viral online and people really got around. I think it's interesting that um, there's so many different ways to come to that title but at the end of it, I know that if I was in your position, I wouldn't sit right if it didn't mean something. Yeah. So as marketable as things can be, I think sometimes you want it to mean a little bit more and ultimately i picked up the subtle art um nearly bought it one time ended up listening to it wasn't all that guy's a great writer Mm. wasn't all that impressed because it felt very much like many things you'd read on that topic and i think the title almost made me feel like my height my hopes were so high (laughs) yeah and it didn't deliver to that high hope yeah where i think with your film knowing that that means something the curiosity of going after finding out what it means maybe potentially before they even click onto the documentary or then clicking on and understanding um, what that's about. And this is going to just be a recipe for success. So I'm super excited for you boys. To sort of wrap up today, there's been two consistent, I guess, themes to the end of every podcast. The first is a question. The second is a challenge. Um, it's been over the course of the last sort of couple of months now. The first question I have for you both, which might sound quite cliche considering the topic is, What's your greatest fear right now? You can go first, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I got asked this the other day. Um, kind of topical as well. Um, yeah, so I got asked greatest fear in life, and that and and for me, it still remains becoming a quadriplegic. But I guess working on a documentary of this nature may teach me to maybe not fear it so much. But I think just yeah, that that for me has always been something that's kind of top of mind when I think of something that would scare them, scare me the most definitely more than death or yeah uh, wow brother I've, I've actually got a couple because I've, I've been through this this question a few times and a couple of them are kind of a bit of a joke number one is uh, while I'm surfing duck diving going under a wave and coming up and having a blue bottle sting me in the face that's probably number <laughs> one. Second one is going to open a door and then someone opens it directly into your fingers and you break your fingers. Oh, yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. Uh, but no, really, I think I said my number one fear before is getting that phone call. Um, yeah. That, that something bad has happened to someone that you, you know or something that you care about. I think that's that's something I, in probably a bad way, think about a little bit too much. You know, the, the thing about those two fears there, which I think, you know, yours, Sammy, and, and yours, Bretto, which I think really speak to each other and add power to each other is that fear of losing um the the ability of the body mm-hmm. and i think that speaks to a lot of what this documentary and this story is about is being appreciative and grateful for what we have and the opportunity we have in life to live yeah. it to the fullest and yeah. any chance you get turning those little hurdles and barriers and turning them into those fires to fuel the desire and the drive to live life to the fullest and i think that's where that fear comes from and and for you, Bretto, that call, that's almost more frightening than something happening to yourself because yeah. when it's you, you're in control. Yeah, well, to a, to a certain extent. I always say with my story, I was just a passenger. There wasn't a lot I could do, especially in those earlier stages. 
but I'd yeah. much rather be in that position than someone who's either trying to make a decision to save a life or you know or to mm. try and race to a hospital or do something like that I'm, I'm probably in a similar position to you where I think about this question every time I ask it and I almost come up with a different answer yeah, <laughs> yeah I was gonna say we've got to ask you <laughs> yeah it's it's probably similar and something that's that's been funny for me over the last probably 12 years of my life is I went to a Christian school but was never super religious when my parents separated as close as they remained for me for the first time not being in a house where I could see every one of my family members going to bed safe Mm. freaked the hell out of me because I was out of control it was like I can't see and clearly know that my family's all good so I started just like praying before bed it was the only way I could get to sleep is that like I put it out of my hands and into someone else's a higher power or a god or whatever you believe and for me that practice of praying every night I swear to god up until this day 12 years maybe even 13 years later I cannot sleep at night unless I say that same prayer yeah wow and it stayed with me and I think it's because of that fear it's that fear of you know you always feel like especially as someone who's faced challenges in life I'll find a way through my stuff but I can't speak for the people around me and yeah so for me it's probably that at the moment yeah the second thing and the last thing um, that I actually want to finish off the show on is setting a little bit of intention, setting a goal. Um, I always say to my guests that at one point in time, this this 4K high definition lens that's capturing the podcast as we speak will one day probably look very grainy and outdated. And when that day comes and you're reflecting back on this chat and you know, hopefully with with plenty of those dreams and goals achieved and and reached i want you to set a goal or a challenge for yourself now to to look back and be accountable to can i go the easy one and just say paddle the molokai <laughs> bloody oath you can well, no, i wouldn't I, say it e- i wouldn't say it's easy i i think um i well that's been a big thing for for me is kind of having a, a physical goal like that and i think i always go for a physical goal, physical goal because you can have a tangible outcome yeah i think it's a lot harder to set a goal where there might not be as tangible as an outcome um yeah. i mean i made a, a goal a couple of years ago um to try and save someone's life and it wasn't necessarily through you know there being a disaster in front of me and i'm having to pull someone out of a burning house or something like that it was i wanted my speaking to impact someone where it changes their life to the point where it could have saved them and in doing the mental health work i did i had the opportunity to really change people's lives like that and mm-hmm. and actually you know having save someone's and it wasn't necessarily a goal that i set in saying you know i want someone to come and say look you saved my life but it was more just uh, something that drove my overall way of being yeah and i think that's something that i still try and try and do not necessarily changing one individual's life but being able to do that for for someone just in you know whether it is something that they hear me say on a podcast or when i'm speaking or if they see the movie and and their life has changed. That's really one of, what I want my my impact or my legacy to be. Yeah, I love it. Sammy? Mine's not quite as deep as that. <laughs> um, but I think for me, there's, there's two things that I always want to work towards, and that's progression. Um, I want to look back on the work that I've done. Um, and it's, it's becoming harder as I start to improve and, and get further along in my career. I want to look back on almost each year that I kind of do it now and go, wow, like, that was a huge year of growth. So I hope that at each point in my career, whatever it is, I, I look back on it and go, wow, that, that was a really cool journey. The other thing is that I just want to be happy. So if I'm happy in my career and I'm feeling satisfied and fulfilled, then, then that's kind of the end goal. I love that. I think there are four goals that anyone could attach themselves to and I don't know about the Molokai I don't think that's one, but maybe there's three goals there that anyone could attach themselves to and get great drive and satisfaction and purpose from I think for me the the lesson from today as I sit and you know like we've, we've gotten to know each other over the last year Bretto Semi I've gotten to know you more recently over the last couple of months and talking about this documentary this story and the essence of what it actually means I think it makes me definitely more aware of how lucky we are to be living and breathing like that gift that is life and the obligation that is yours to go out and make the most of it and understanding that no one else is going to do that for you and I think that that would be my message to the audience that are listening or watching on you know just really take life into your own hands because there comes a time where 
Um, it's out of your hands. It's no longer yours to live. And you want to make sure that you look back with as little regret as possible and a whole heap of great memories and enjoyment and um, a life that had plenty of meaning. So, lads, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here in the HQ. Yes, as um, always. The kookaburras were going off outside. Um, <laughs> dogs was, barking. There was plenty of dogs and plenty of movement. But, um, yeah, it's just been a privilege to have you in. I'm super excited for this project. I'll make sure that for everyone listening, watching these boys' descriptions, their tags, every way that you can connect with them on social throughout the course of this documentary's involvement um, and also throughout the course of their career and, and Honest Boys Productions, you can be connected with them and, and make sure you reach out to them and let, you, let them know how much you loved today's episode. Um, thanks so much for being here. Super excited for it. And I guess we'll see it on screen soon. Fingers crossed, definitely. Thanks, Brad. Been um, been a pleasure having you sort of track a lot of not only my story but bringing other parts of it in. It's it's amazing. Just not only that side of things, but then you know it kind of has brought me into more of of your world and what you're doing, which is always inspirational for for me personally. So not to want to have the last word on you here, but no, um, go for it, go for it. These are the stars of the show right now. Yeah, no, no. Um, But no, thank you. I I really appreciate it, man. No pleasure. Thanks for having us, man. Legends. Take care, guys.